Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. On the grounds of the University of Geneva in Switzerland, inscribed in large letters on an external wall, you'll find the Latin phrase, post tenebras lux. Beneath this Latin inscription, you'll find sculptures some 16 feet tall of, uh, of four important men in the history of Geneva and of the, the wider Church of Jesus Christ. Those four men are William Farrell, Theodore Beza, John Knox, and John Calvin, a couple of names you're probably familiar with. Post-Tenebras Lux means after darkness, light. This phrase became the motto of the city of Geneva, even appearing on their coins from the era. And eventually, it became the motto of the Protestant Reformation as a whole. Apart from maybe the just sheer tenacity of Martin Luther, the German monk, there was perhaps no aspect of the European Reformations that was more influential than the preaching and writing of John Calvin. Calvin conducted the vast majority of his Christian ministry in Geneva, and he took his post there deadly seriously. You see, the church in the Middle Ages had been victimized by a long period of spiritual abuses and confusion at the hands of its chief leaders, and the word of God was effectively silenced in the lives of everyday Christians, hidden, as it was, beneath language barriers and the selfish control of popes and priests. The Luke's in view in that phrase, post-Tenebras Luke's, was the light of God's word. After a lengthy season of exile, what Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church, during which the word of God was scarcely heard or known, and people had little or no access to the Bible in their own language, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries brought about a substantial recovery of biblical truth, and indeed of the Bible itself, as devout scholars went to work translating the scriptures into the common languages of the people. In this context, John Calvin's ministry in Geneva was unapologetically word-centered. Having been brought by God's grace from the darkness of the Babylonian captivity into the light of the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Calvin stubbornly and diligently preached and taught the Bible only and always from his pulpit and in his study, of course, writing some of the best enduring works of uh, Christian teaching, including his magnum opus, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Anybody read The Institutes other than Mike? (laughs) I knew your hand would go up. All right. And today, the Reformation wall in Geneva stands as a monument to God's gracious providence, post-Tenebras Luke's, after darkness, light. That transition, that recovery of God's word is something like what's going on in Samuel's day for the people of God. During the period of the judges, of course, the repeated refrain of that book is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? People have stopped caring about what God says. 
People have stopped listening for instruction and counsel and command from the Lord. They're doing their own thing. They're living their own way, right? That's how people, the people of God were living. But God in this season and throughout the book of Samuel is preparing new leadership for his people. He's provided a son to a barren woman who in turn was dedicated to God's service in the temple. And as the crooked, depraved leadership of the sons of Eli is declining and headed toward destruction, God is growing little Samuel in the priesthood at Shiloh. And in today's text, Samuel will be established as a prophet. And so we'll see this, the beginning of this recovery of God's word for the people of God. If you've got a copy of the Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. In that black hardcover Bible, it'll be somewhere around like page 212. I haven't looked recently, but chapter 1 is on page 211, so it's got to be right around there if that's what you're looking at. Before we can appreciate the grace of a freshly minted prophet, we need first to glimpse the darkness to which God's people have been subjected. And we get the chance to do that in verse 1. Look with me, the first verse of chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering in the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is the situation of God's people. The word of the Lord is rare. That's the Hebrew yakar, uh, King James Version, and some others translate that as precious. The word of God was precious in those days. Because when something is rare, when something is hard to come by, it is immeasurably more valuable, right? We say that something is precious, a jewel is precious, or, or something because there's not many of them, or because it is of a unique class, right? And so when something is rare, it is precious, it is more valuable, and that is the the sense we get about God's word. The, the word from God to his people is rare. He has, in a sense, stopped speaking to his people. It says there that there's no frequent vision. And a vision is one of these, the, the chief ways that God would reveal himself and his message to his messenger, to a prophet. And this didn't happen very often in these days. In Israel's life, we actually have a couple of, ex- of isolated examples of God sending a, a messenger. Uh, we saw one of those just last week as an unnamed and unknown man of God came to Eli in the middle of chapter two with this message of judgment that God is going to cut his house off from the priesthood because of the wickedness of his sons and his failure to stop it. And so we don't know anything about that guy, but God appointed him to bring a message. Uh, to Eli. And there's another example of uh, just such an unnamed and unknown prophet uh, in Judges chapter 6, verses 7 and 10. Again, somebody with no name or credentials that the Bible records for us, but someone comes and delivers a message. So this happened occasionally, but not often. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And we're not just talking about in the world. We're not just talking about in the nations. We're talking about the people of God. The covenant people of God rarely heard from him. And I think it begs the question, why? Why was the word of God rare? In other words, why wasn't God speaking to his people? 
And I think, in a word, it's judgment. I think God's silence to his people is itself a statement of judgment on the people of God. If the word of God among his people is light and guidance and wisdom, if the abundance of his word is an expression of his grace toward his people, then its absence or its removal isn't merely passive. It is an intentional act of judgment on God's part. Because remember, the people of Israel have abandoned their covenant in the most part here. They've stopped listening to God. They've stopped caring about representing him and living holy lives in the world. They've begun worshiping false gods from the pagan nations that surround them. And so God, in an act of judgment, just stops talking to them, just removes his voice. In a nutshell, the people had stopped listening, so God stopped speaking. You've probably seen uh, kids when they get aggravated with somebody and they don't want to hear what the other one is saying, put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 I'm not listening, right? Maybe you've done that, I, you know. Um, but that, that's, a, that's essentially what's going on here, right? That's like, we don't want to hear what you have to say, God. We're not interested. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful not to fall into the trap of our forefathers in the faith and shut our ears to the voice of God. Let us not deafen ourselves to his calls, but lean toward him in expectant hope for light and wisdom and revelation from his word. What a tragedy to live within the sound of God's voice, to be under the the teaching and instruction of his word and to stand, as it were, with fingers in our ears. I'm not listening. May it never be said of our church that the word of the Lord was rare. We want to be a church where the word of God is everywhere. It's the basis of all that we do. We're constantly placing ourselves under its authority and and learning and, and listening to what the Lord would say to us through it. Well, all of this is about to change. God has, in judgment, removed his word. He stopped speaking to the people of Israel. And yet, God is about to break his silence. As in the next few verses, the word arrives. The word was rare, and now we see the word arrive. Look at verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. So Eli and Samuel are in the temple, laying down in their respective quarters, wherever their uh, bedrooms, so to speak, are. They probably didn't have bedrooms like we think of them. Uh, And we have the detail here that the lamp of God had not yet gone out, which tells us that this is somewhere in the middle of the night. The the lamp would be lit from... from, uh, the, the fall of evening, excuse me, it would be lit late in the evening and then burned through to dawn of the next day as a symbolic uh, example of God's presence among his people, even in the dark of night. And so somewhere in the middle of the night, uh, this is about to occur. The word of the Lord will come to Samuel. Uh, and the text also mentions for us the, the ark of God and that Samuel is in the vicinity of the ark. Right? It says that he is uh, lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, the ark of God hasn't shown up yet until this moment in 1 Samuel. 
and it's only mentioned here in chapter 3. It'll play a bigger role in the next few chapters, uh, so keep your eye on it. But just a couple of things, I think, to, to see or to mention about the Ark of God, called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a sign of God's covenant with Israel, basically a box that he had had the people uh, build in which were kept the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Moses had gone up on the mountain and, and God had etched into stone these Ten Commandments, sort of summarizing his law for them and, and the way that he would command the people to live. And so those stone tablets are kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, as well as Aaron's staff. Aaron was the, the father of the, the priestly line of the people of Israel. And so his staff is in uh, the Ark of the Covenant as well. The most significant aspect of the Ark was actually on the, the lid or the, the cover of the Ark, which is what was called the mercy seat. And it was this mercy seat upon which the high priest each year would sprinkle the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed for the sins of the people. And one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the most holy place. That's what it was called, or the Holy of Holies. They would, he would enter this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was with blood from this lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a symbol of God's atonement for their sin, both the sin of the priest and the sin of the people. Now, obviously, this text here doesn't go into any of those details. It just mentions that Samuel is lying near the ark of God. And so you might think I'm making too much of the ark here. But I think it's significant that Samuel, who is about to be called and established as a messenger to carry God's word, is found near the Ark of the Covenant, the place where atonement is made for sins. You see, the word of God and the atoning grace of God are always close companions. Where God's word is announced, God's mercy is close behind where forgiveness of sins and cleansing and purifying that come through, ultimately through the blood of Christ shed for us, where, that, where his grace is found, his word is right there, announcing, teaching, instructing. So we have that detail that the Ark of the Covenant is near, and I just think that's important for us to get the, the, the context of what's about to happen. So let's continue reading, starting in verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then, then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant Hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. 
Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, this is a very well-known story. If you grew up in church and going to Sunday school like I did, you probably can even envision the poster with the painting of little Samuel on his bedroll in the temple, sitting up and, you know, like he hears this voice. And so often we, we've, we've used this story and seen this story as an example of, you know, like a little child even being drawn to the Lord or listening for the voice of God. So this is a very familiar story. But I think there's a few things in this account that, that we need to, to notice to help us really get a sense of what God is doing here, what, what is at play. We know before Samuel does that it's the Lord calling to him, right? Samuel hears this calling, and he thinks it's Eli. But we know from the very beginning of it, in verse 4, the Lord called Samuel. So there's no mystery to us as the readers. We can see plainly, no, God is talking to Samuel. So it almost has this comedic thing to it where, like, Samuel keeps going back to Eli and going, here I am, what do you need? You keep calling me. And we're like, no, Samuel, it's not Eli, it's the Lord. Like, because we know what's going on before he does. So the Lord calls Samuel three times where he mistakes it for Eli's voice before he finally hits his target with the fourth call. And a couple of things stand out to me here. First of all, God's voice was clear enough to Samuel that it seemed like an audible voice, right? It wasn't an inner sense of like peace or some impression. He thought Eli was calling his name. It seemed that clear to him. Now, this is a unique calling. Uh, uh, God doesn't normally reveal himself in this way to people. Honestly, I've never met a single person who even claims to have heard God audibly call to them. Um, we're dealing here with a special kind of direct revelation because Samuel's role is to be a special role, that of prophet. God is appointing him as his messenger to the people of God. So God's voice is clear enough to Samuel that it seems like an audible voice. And apparently, it was only audible to Samuel because Eli doesn't hear the same thing. When Samuel goes to Eli and says, you called me, Eli doesn't go, no, that wasn't me. I heard it too. He goes, no, I didn't. Go back to bed, right? You're hearing stuff. And it's not until the, after the third time that Samuel's come to him and said, you called me again, that Eli has the presence of mind to go, something else is happening here. He's not hearing my voice, but he is hearing a voice. He's hearing the voice of Yahweh, the voice of God. Another thing that I think is, is important to note is that God calls him by name. When God calls to him, he says, Samuel, sometimes even repeating it, Samuel, Samuel. This is a personal, relatable, relational call. How precious. God is raising up Samuel for a specific purpose, a particular task for his people, and he invites him into this role with the personal touch of calling him by name. I realize you and I aren't appointed as prophets in the same way, but I can't help but think of the gentle personal calling of Christ, the good shepherd, to each of his sheep. 
In John 10, 3, Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The voice of the Lord calling in, in quiet tones, in an internal call where a heart is opened to the beauty of Christ, and, and they hear the call of the, the gospel to, to repent and believe, and they draw near to him. Praise God for his gracious calling, that when we were lost and dead in our sins, he opened our ears to hear the voice of Jesus, and we followed him out of our sin and into his green pastures. So though Eli doesn't hear the voice after Samuel's third appearance, he has... Uh, the recognition of what's going on. It's the Lord. And so he gives them this instruction. Go back to your place. And when the Lord calls again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so that's exactly what Samuel does. He goes back. He lies down. The Lord calls. This is the fourth time. He calls his name again, as at other times, it tells us. And Samuel replies, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. This is a beautiful example of a heart ready to receive God's word. Though we can't expect to hear the voice of God in the same way that Samuel did, nevertheless, we receive from his spirit every time we gather as the church to hear instruction from his word. We hear the voice of God in the pages of scripture as we read and meditate during our own personal times of study. God speaks to our hearts as we read the Bible together with other Christians in homes and coffee shops in various points throughout the week. In all of these times and ways, we have the privilege to receive God's word. May we have such a humble and eager heart. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. This is how we ought to welcome and receive God's word when it's given to us. So now the word arrives to Samuel. And it's not an easy word. It's a hard word. We might wish that God had given Samuel a slightly milder message for his first prophetic assignment, but nevertheless, God has chosen Samuel to be his mouthpiece, and he has a timely word for Eli. And it's really just a confirmation of the message that he had delivered to Eli through that unnamed prophet back in chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. And we're told once again... In verse 13, that the reason Eli and his house are being cut off is, quote, for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So once again, there's a good word of caution for us here. We will be held accountable by God, not only for the sins that we directly commit but by our complicit knowledge or tolerance of the sins of others within the body of Christ, within the church. This is why church discipline is sometimes necessary. It seems like a a hard, harsh line to our kind of cultural ears and understanding, but God places these boundaries around the church to preserve the glory of his name to protect the purity of the bride of Christ. And so sometimes the church has to speak into the life of one who claims the name of Christ, who is living outside of his confession of faith in Christ, living in ways that are inconsistent with his 
uh, with his faith and with the, the commands of Christ. And so church discipline sometimes, sadly, in a fallen world, is necessary for the church to carry out, not as an act of just punishment and retribution, but as an act of mercy, as an act of saying to somebody, we're concerned about your soul because of the way that you're living out of step with what you say you believe. And so we call you to repent and to return. And so God's grace comes to sinners at times in the form of church discipline. And God may have been gracious and patient with Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, had Eli maybe taken that step a little earlier, a little firmer, stepped in to make sure that this grievous sin that they were committing had stopped. And nevertheless, he did too little too late, and the Lord holds him accountable for not restraining the evil of his sons. Now notice here the connection between the word of God and the works of of God. He's appointing, really for the first time since Moses, a full-time prophet to hear and deliver God's word to the people. And his first message is one concerning an action or a set of actions that he's about to take, right? Verse 11 says, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle because it's heavy. It's hard. It's a big change. When God is about to move, first he speaks. When God is about to put things in motion for his redemptive plans and purposes, he first publishes his word through a messenger. That's the way that God operates. This is essentially the place that we're in today as ambassadors for Christ's coming kingdom. God is preparing an eternal home for those who know him, those who are resting in Jesus Christ by faith. And he's storing up eternal judgment for those who reject his salvation and remain under his wrath. And he sends us out into the world to announce this coming kingdom before it arrives in full. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not a prophet like Samuel but you've been entrusted with a message. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sins and taken him as your savior and been brought by his grace into the family of God, the church of God, you're a messenger. You've been given this gospel of peace, this gospel announcement of peace with God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a coming kingdom and a coming judgment. And God sends us out with this word. Before he acts, before he establishes, before he judges, he speaks. He announces through us, through his church. May we be found faithful as we carry that message. So here's little Samuel. He's received his first message from the Lord, and it's a hard word. A hard word for a man that he no doubt has come to love. I mean, Eli is his father figure, right? Because his mom took him to the temple and said, see you later. And she left. This is where he lives. And he's been brought up under not just the teaching of Eli, but just the daily care and provision and, and, and friendship of this man. And this is a man he's come to love. And yet Samuel has a very hard job now to deliver this message of judgment to 
Eli. Let's look on now to verse 15 as the word is delivered. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli, understandably. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. So Eli knows that he's received a message from the Lord and he's eager to hear it. Remember, the word of the Lord is rare in these days. So now that he knows God's been calling to Samuel, He's going to speak to Samuel. He is eager to know. What does God say? What is the message from God? And so he approaches Samuel and urges him to share it. I think he knows that it's a word of judgment. For one thing, he just received a message of judgment from another unnamed prophet at some time in the recent past. But also the way that he sort of leverages Samuel into telling him the message is all the stuff that God said was going to happen to me is going to happen to you if you don't tell me what he said, right? Basically kind of places a curse upon him if you don't share it with me. So I think he kind of knows the content of it is basically hard. It's basically a judgment. And, and, but but, but in, in, in a way, you might even see this as an act of mercy, right? To, 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 to say to Samuel, essentially, you're cursed if you don't tell me everything. Knowing Samuel's timidity in relaying the message, he more or less removes any reasonable hesitancy on Samuel's part, taking the pressure off of him in a way, right? You'd better tell me or else, okay, well, I guess I'll do it, right? So now it doesn't seem like an act of aggression on Samuel's part. Eli is urging him in no uncertain terms to tell him the message. And so he relays it. He tells him everything. He hides nothing from him. And it's basically this message God is confirming Everything that he told you earlier, that he is going to judge your family and remove you from the priesthood and kill your sons, and it's not going to go well for you because of your sin and the sins of your sons. And here's Eli's response. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now, it's hard to read Eli's mind or emotions here. He's certain that it's from the Lord because it's just a confirmation of what he'd already heard. So now he's heard it from two different messengers independently. That's confirmation. All right, this is seriously what the Lord is going to do. So he knows it's from the Lord. And he seems to have at least resigned himself to the reality of what's to come. Well, if I'm going to be judged, let it come, right? But here's what I like about this reply. And given the context, I don't think it's an accident. Remember, the author of the book of Judges has summed up this period in Israel's life with the repeated phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? That's an indictment on the people of God. They just did what what they thought was right, what seemed good to them, right? And what does Eli say in response to God's pronouncement of judgment? Let him do what seems good to him. We're on the brink of a fundamental change for God's people. They've done what seemed good to them for long enough and made a right mess of things. Now for a change, God is going to do among them what seems good to him. And while it comes with hard truth and bitter judgment, it is full of grace and kindness. He is preparing his people for a new day, 
a new program of righteousness and peace. And he's setting the stage for a kingdom and a priesthood that would be a blessing not only to the nation of Israel, but to all the peoples of the world. Let him do what seems good to him. This is what we need. We need to do not what seems right to us, but what seems right to the Lord. Let's let him call the shots. Let's let him direct us for a change. Well, with the story of Samuel's first prophecy, we get some concluding words about his ministry that really provide God's gracious answer to the need described at the beginning of the chapter, right? Let's look at verse 19 as we see the word established. Read with me from verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The answer at the end of chapter 3 and the the start of chapter 4 could not be more clear and in more stark contrast to the situation that opened the chapter. Remember, this chapter opened in verse 1. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Now look back at verse 19. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. No mention of Eli anymore. Samuel is now serving with reference only to the presence of God with him. And the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. What a beautiful way to express the steady, trustworthy witness of Samuel's prophetic ministry. So sure was it, in fact, that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, that is from its northernmost city to its southernmost, right? All of Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then down in 4.1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel, which is really whose word? Not Samuel's, but God's. God's word, which had been rare for many years, has now come to all Israel. Post-Tenebras, Luke's, the season of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes and having no king and no voice from the Lord is over. And God is speaking to his people. He's bringing the light and guidance and grace of his word again to the people of God. And Samuel is on the front lines of this as he becomes the the prototypical prophet who speaks God's word to the king and to the people. Samuel's the first one. When we think of the Old Testament, we think of the kings and all that. We always think of some prophet that God called to speak the message to those kings. That starts here. That wasn't the norm until Samuel. God raises him up and sets him up as the first prophet uh, in this way. And in fact, he will anoint the first two kings of Israel and Saul and David after him. And we'll see those stories unfold throughout this book. Well, there's another time in Israel's history, about six centuries after the events of 1 Samuel, where God would fall silent for a long time. God would once again, as judgment on his people's stubborn rebellion, stop speaking to them for about 400 years. The last words from God to Israel before this period came through the prophet Malachi. 
which not coincidentally is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last prophetic word that is given to the people of Israel before he stops speaking for 400 years. And that silence would be broken, not by the call in the night to a young temple servant, but by the cry of a baby in Bethlehem. This baby was the one who, we're told in John chapter 1, existed for eternity past with God the Father in the heavens. John called him the Word. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he goes on to say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's grace can clearly be seen in establishing Samuel as a prophet and returning his word to the people of Israel. But nowhere does his grace shine more brightly into our darkness than in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. He still speaks today. He still calls his sheep by name. His nail-scarred hands are extended in welcoming grace to all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. And in his forgiveness and mercy, we find the ultimate expression of light coming after darkness, post-Tenebras Luke's. Let's pray.